Greg Moore was the editor of the Denver Post for 14 years, but after retiring from the Post, he didn't move on from Denver, and now, for the first time, is involving himself in politics. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV, which stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. You're going to enjoy this discussion. When he left the Denver Post, we hoped he'd move out of town, but no, he stayed in Denver. (sighs) Some guys. (laughs) Greg Moore, good to see you again. It's good to be back. Why didn't you go get another gig in the growing media field when when you left the Denver Post? You know what? I felt like I had had my run 40 years. I felt like I had my time, and it was sort of time to let other people get on the stage. But I, I really do love Denver. I like living here. My kids were born here, so um, it was comfortable to stay, and I wasn't really looking for another media job. So, I.e., you're unemployable. <laughs> well, that's one way of looking at it, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I know the feeling. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but you have a pension. I don't, so I got to keep mm, the Not job. much of one. I mean, you know, pensions were going out of style when I got here, so. How, how, how many years were you the editor of the Post? Fourteen. 14. So from 2000. That's a, that's a record, really. That's, it's that's pretty a long, long time. It's a pretty long time. A lot, a lot of people didn't think I'd make it that far. So from 2002 to 2016, yeah. You were there during, I don't want to say the downfall, but it was the collapse of papers. Right. You know, I, I think about the wrong time to be in big papers that is a crappy time to be in papers. You were there when the Rocky Mountain News closed up shop. Right, right. From my point of view as, as a political activist and, and a news consumer, right. that was one of the saddest days in, in Denver. You know, I might have a record. Uh, I've been in three different markets where we lost a newspaper. In 1975, I was in Toledo when the Toledo Times closed, the morning newspaper. Uh, were you na- on that paper? Or no, I was you- on the Toledo, Toledo Blade, the, the afternoon paper. Yeah. And then I was in Cleveland in 1981 when the Cleveland Press, which was the evening paper, closed. And then I was here in 2009 when the Rocky closed. So, so, so either that means you're good at killing the competition, <laughs> some, or, or I'm just some really some, bad luck, right? But but you know what? For most of the time that I was here, it was it was like the end of the golden um, yeah. time of journalism, where you still had resources. You could travel anywhere you needed to travel to tell a story. You had, you know, ample time to investigate things. It didn't really start to get really uh, tough until like around 2009, 2010. But, you know, for those first six, seven years, it was still fun to be in newspapers. A lot of fun. Well, you had ridiculous things like copy editors. (laughs) Yeah, we did. (laughs) We did. And for those people who don't know, these are guys who would read the story and right. go, no, that's not supposed to be a comma. That's supposed to be a semicolon. That's exactly right. You know, and they don't change the story. They just fix the problems. Right. I'm dyslexic. I can't read. And when I read stories out of newspapers today and and I go, that's misspelled. Right. Or that tense is wrong. Um, and it's usually in my own column, by the way. <laughs> you know, and I go, and I go, there are no copy editors right. anymore. So right. at the height of your years at the Post, mm-hmm. what was what was the staff 
On, not not the business side and all that, but on the reporting, uh, writing staff. So the newsroom staff at its biggest, which was around maybe 2006, it was exactly 309 people. 309 and, people. Mm-hmm. And that was, we're not talking about selling subscriptions. No, and selling, no. Uh, selling Reporters, right. editors, photographers, copy editors, um, sports writers, that columnists. That's what we what, what do you think it is now? I would say it's probably around 60, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that sounds about right. Something like that. All right, so. Dramatic drop. We were friends when when you decided to quit. Yes. And I really pushed you on this, I remember. Why, why, oh, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's just time. You know? Yeah, yeah. The usual yeah. crap people say. Yeah. I got a real sense that you just couldn't handle laying off anybody else. I was tired of doing it. And Talk to me about that. You know, it's, um, uh, look, I'll, I'll tell you, it's really amazing. I had people that hugged me when it was when it was time to uh, say goodbye, to lay them off. Yeah. I had people that were angry, clenched yeah. fists. Yeah. I had people that cried with yeah. me. Um, you know, I had people that said, "Look, I understand." But what what I discovered in that process was I was losing a little bit of myself every time I had to do it. Like I I couldn't even sleep the night before, you know, knowing that I was gonna walk in there and change somebody's life. And after a while, I just said I couldn't do it anymore. I just really couldn't do it anymore. And there was no purpose in doing it. It wasn't like we were getting to a better place, you know? So it was just really cutting expenses and they were raking the change into their, you know, into their purses and taking it to the counting room. So- They being who? They being, you know, the owners, the Alden Global Capital hedge fund owners. That's what they were doing. And once I realized that, I was like, anybody can do that. They don't need me to do it. And I'm not going to take another brick out of the house that I built. Not one. Not not one more. I'm done. And, you know, one of the things that was really interesting, there was this point at the end where we had to do some simultaneous layoffs. And I couldn't get to everybody, so I deputized somebody to do that. What's a simultaneous layoff? Like, you know got to lay off like a bunch of people in different departments at the same time. And for, for, for somebody in photography, somebody in reporting, somebody in copy editing, something like that. And you, you got to do it at a certain time so they can make their shift and all this kind of stuff. And I couldn't do everybody personally. So I, I, um, deputized somebody to do it, to do one. And that one person was angry as hell. And I was like, you know, people were like, why does that person hate you? And it turns out it's because I didn't personally lay her off. Like people wanted, they, they wanted, wanted to hear it from, from you. me, from yeah. me. And when I talk to people about that, oh, I mean, wow. the beginning and the end is really, really important that you're there. And I actually just underestimated how important that was for them to hear that news from me. So, you know, it's, um, it's a personally know? trying time, but it was also personally important that the door got closed the right way. Did they know when, you know, you walk out of your office, you go, Smith, come on in here. And it's like, because oh. I, um, I, reporters, as much as I, I, I hate, and you and I have this fight all the time, yeah. the bias of, of, of the news, reporters are funny, yeah. intelligent yeah. people yeah. who, like alcoholics, don't know their bias and never, <laughs> never admit it. Right. But, but man, they're, they're sharp, they they're witty. They catch on quick. Yeah, they're, they're just fun to be around. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I I would imagine you know. Um, so they and, knew and when I talked to a lot they, of them during knew. the time, and the ones I talked to during the time said this sucks. 
Yeah. I, I go to work, I feel like there's always an ax over my head. There's this sickle that's just kind of yeah. you know, swinging. And you metronome. never know which day it, it, it's going to land on me. Yeah. So one of the things we did is we always tried to give people dignity, right? Like, uh, you know, so if they want Why would you give them dignity when you guys never gave us dignity with what you reported? <laughs> well, yeah, we treat you a little bit differently. You're not family. That's <laughs> but but what we would do is, you know, everybody handles that kind of news differently. Like, you know, uh, and so we wouldn't do it in a place where people in the newsroom could see them exiting a room crying mm -hmm. in tears. So we would do it uh, uh, on a different floor. And so when they were summoned to the eighth floor, they knew that something bad was going to happen. And so, you know, we'd give them a little time to sort of get composed and uh, that kind of stuff and give them a, you know, if they wanted to go home right away, they could. If they wanted to work the rest of the day, they could. I never escorted anyone out of the building, never shut off their computer. I mean, why all of a sudden would you treat them like the enemy? So I really objected to people that handled layoffs that way. But we tried to make sure that they were able to exit with some dignity. If they wanted to say goodbye to people, if they wanted to clean out their own desk, they could do that. And we, we allowed that. My point of view, having two competitive papers, mm -hmm. both wanting to scoop each other. Yeah. The times when I would go, oh, I've got a story, mm -hmm. and I would talk to a reporter, and don't you dare tell the Rocky. Don't right. you dare tell the Post. <laughs> and... And I could, I could say, you know, all right, I'm, I'm trying to get this message out. Yeah. And there was an audience. Mm -hmm. It's a shell of that now. Right. It is a shell. Now, politicians still care about what, what newspapers say because they think people actually care. Uh, they care about what editorial sections think because they think people still read the mm -hmm. papers. I'm thrilled to see the Denver Gazette up and running uh, on, a, um, uh, on their e-format. Uh, it's great to see lots of small things happening. Right. But I... I don't see, I don't see what is going to replace newspapers in, in the future. So, as a guy who's done radio, talk radio for 25 years, the Post, the news, would lead radio and TV as to what they're supposed to report. Exactly. It had, it had a leading effort. Yeah, setting the agenda. And now, I don't know what does. Nothing does. Yeah, what, what really, you know, sort of dominates um, sort of the food chain farther down is traffic and weather. Like, you see, you know, a little more traffic. You see a little bit more weather uh, because they really don't have that seed corn that they used to get from the newspapers. And it was a rich field, okay, when the, when the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post was around. I mean, those folks, those producers were getting to their office at 2.30 in the morning, reading the papers back to back. Uh, so that they could figure out who to invite on their shows, who to yep. invite on the talk shows, who to invite on their radio shows. They were depending on the Post and, and the Rocky to help them pre figure that out. Yes, yeah, pre-internet. That was That's it. exactly right. All right. The downside to that is you had two channels of news information. You had a couple radio stations. The other side is now you've got a thousand flowers blooming mm -hmm. and, you know, Five million weeds blooming. Yeah, there's you some know, weeds uh, in yeah, there. Yeah, that, that are popping up. You, uh, anyone can start something. You've got social media channels, and people say, where do you get your news? And they say, on my phone. Yeah. Okay, what, what, what does that mean, on my phone? And it means, well, on my feed. What do you mean on your feed? Mm -hmm. well, either on TikTok or Instagram yeah. or Facebook or yeah. Twitter. Yeah. It's like, well, it depends on what you follow. And so you see things that pop up, and that's where people get their touchstone of what they see. 
And yeah. it's really, really great. And it's really, really awful. Right. Extrapolate and, for and, me. And Go. it's a little bit dangerous, too, because what, what they're really doing is they're deputizing friends and influencers to sort of um, deliver the news to them. Usually, they're not uh, subscribing directly to a news organization or, you know, the Time magazine, but they're getting um, um, a feed, a push from you about something you read that they also think you would be interested in because they think you're interested in the same things they're interested in. And so you're getting a very narrowed sort of funnel of information that doesn't even begin to reflect the richness of the information that's out there. It's just, it's yeah, very dangerous. No, it's very dangerous. It's also dangerous the other way. It is. Because you got a handful of guys at, at the newspaper compared to a multitude of people out there feeding stuff in different ways. Yeah. So they're both dangerous. Right. So the quality you have Citizen Kane deciding what you see. Right. Um, um, and by Citizen Kane I'm, I mean you. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah. Um, and I'll take that. Yeah, you of course you are because <laughs> take, you're I'll the take, editor of the damn yeah, post. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's also dangerous because you don't have enough reporters out there to get um, enough diversity of opinion and perspective and sourcing uh, yeah. for information. So it's it's dangerous all the way around. This is a this is a tough place for us to be right now. I don't think that we're going to stay here. I think there will be something that will replace newspapers. There'll be something that will help make journalism robust again. And I don't know if it's just technology or yeah. Jump ahead ten years. Oh. All right. So what's interesting is you spent nearly fifteen years at the Post at the head. You saw the collapse of big media, mm -hmm. um, and you've seen you. You're still really planted in Colorado politics. You're still a big part of the culture here, a big part of the community. You're, you're involved in a lot of civic organizations, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that scares the hell out of me. Uh, really, <laughs> you just want me to go away, John. I really, I've, okay. I've told you that a long <laughs> time ago. Um, so you 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 see the media. You see what's really going on. Going into a time capsule ten years from now, what do you, what do you see? What where, where are we getting news? Denver's still Denver. You know the corruption from 100 years ago. Yeah. You know the corruption yeah. that goes on now. Yeah. You know the politics. 10 years from now, how do we learn about it? How do we get our sports stores? How do we uh, scores? How do we get the weather? How do we get all this good stuff? You know and, what? And how do we get the investigations of what's going on in local governments that we never, we, we still don't get as well as we should? You know, I actually, honestly, uh, you know, I can't really see into that crystal ball, but here's what I think uh, will happen. It's sort of like um, um, this, this, this situation is going to allow a thousand flowers to bloom uh, of all different colors, all different stripes. I mean, um, I, I think we're going to see a, a bunch of different models. But I do think you're going to see more narrow casting where there's just going to be a channel that's devoted to uh, transportation coverage or right. to education coverage or to uh, investigative stuff or to the Broncos and the Rockies separately, not some omnibus sports coverage, but really targeted coverage. And you're going to be able to sort of like uh, get that in your feed. And it'll be produced by, you know, two or three people the way, you know, this show is being produced by two or three people. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, or we, or, or we actually there's a whole bunch got of a, people. We got a team, man. <laughs> but I think it's going to be more like that, more segmented. And, and, and part of that is because technology is going to make it much easier to get into the game. 
You don't need a printing press. You don't need ink. You don't need trucks. You just need a fertile mind and a lot of energy. And um, hopefully, you know, uh, if you're credible, you'll have a pretty good audience and you may be able to monetize it. That's what I think. The monetization is the part. The, 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 thing, that killed, the thing that killed newspapers, yeah. you lost the classifieds. You yeah. lost the classifieds, and then then you lost the subscriptions, and then uh, and then Facebook the and came. Right. Google came and ate everything else. All right, same thing with with television stations and radio stations. Right? Why why would you do it? The the monetization is the part that that people haven't figured out. And if and if Joe mm -hmm. Rogan can do a show and make money off of it, mm -hmm. that'll be great. Right? How you do that in small markets? That's the key. How does you know you eye on Englewood. Mm -hmm. We want to keep an eye on Englewood City Council. Mm -hmm. How does that guy make a, enough money to, to make it worthwhile? And that's really the question. So right now there's this new book out that, that's called What Works? And it's sort of collected a whole bunch of different examples of uh, startups from all around the country, including the Colorado Sun and, and some other things. And they all have slightly different models. Some of them have um, philanthropic support. Right. Some of them have um, corporate support. Some of them have sponsorships. Uh, so there, there's a whole bunch of experimentation, including publicly financed journalism, where you know there's been um, you know taxing authorities in New Jersey that are you know supporting uh, journalism and things like that. Scares so I, the hell out of me. I know, but it doesn't scare me that much. Of course right? It, no, not really. It doesn't scare me. So I think right now we're in a shaking out period where there are about seven or eight different models that are being experimented with, and I think we're going to be able to coalesce around two or three probably in the next five years. Government-funded media. Yeah. Government media. Well, I don't say government-funded. I say taxpayer-funded journalism. It's the same but, damn thing. Who, well, who decides what gets funded? And you go to your customers, and if your customer is government, that's going to be a problem. You know what? But, but, but you know, we've tried the corporate model before. I mean, for the last you know, 70 years, you know, journalism was financed by the corporations that we covered, and nobody seemed to say anything about that. They were funded by the customers who bought the papers. No, that was only like 10, 15% of what it cost to put together a newsroom and put together a product. 85% of it was funded by, um, you know, American Home Furniture and Janus and other major- The advertisers. Yeah, corporations. Yeah. The advertisers. Corporations, okay? That's what they Which, were. They yeah, were but businesses. advertisers were businesses. who got to get to customers. Yeah, there were businesses that we covered, right? They were they were businesses that we covered. And we had safeguards put in place. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you know we were dealing with Mike Shaw, auto dealers, for example, you know, we had we had safeguards where Mike, you know, wasn't, you know, able to influence our coverage and all of that. But I don't think it's any that much different to let taxpayers have a whack at supporting the journalism that they need and care about. And so we'll figure out a way yeah, because I to look do at, it. I look at NPR as a mouthpiece for socialism <laughs> and PBS as nothing more than a mega mouthpiece for, for socialism. And uh, I, you know, no, so sorry. You, so you don't want that. Do so would you rather have nothing? That is what we call in argumentation a false dichotomy. Okay, well, let's that's pursue it anyway. Name. Pursue it anyway. No, that's not worth pursuing because okay. the idea that either we have a government mouthpiece uh, operation or nothing when we have so many other ideas, uh, which is customers funding it. We do have lots of newspapers that have funding models that work. The right. Wall Street Journal is a huge paper, 
and that is funded. We also have rich guys who buy papers. Right. I look at um, the Washington Post, which right. is owned by a rich guy. Yeah. You know, uh, we have those models. We have... Um, we have Elon Musk, you know, uh, controlling Twitter and stuff like that. So I, I don't know who comes along next. We also have things like Chalkbeat, who, we who's, do. Who, who's here. We have, in my realm, we have a little not-for-profit, my organization that runs Complete Colorado. It has a couple of freelance reporters that looks at different stories. Right. We get little contributions to try to keep these reporters alive. Right. You know, uh, we don't take government money. Right. We say that with pride. We don't take government money. Yeah. As if they give us any. That's right. Uh, they, not you anyway, right? Yeah, but, no, not but, us. But the point I'm making is that I, I think there are a bunch of different models out there, and I'd like to see them all pursued. And I'm not saying no to anything right now. I'm not saying no to anything. Um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the idea that I would even consider taxpayer-supported journalism, I mean, I was trained to think that that was a no-no. And uh, um, Russian, Russian funded uh, media. No, outlet? no, I don't. No, no tasks or anything like Why that. Not? Well, c- because that's propaganda. That's not journalism, right? Oh, but when our government does it, that's not propaganda. No, no that's USAIA or something like that. I'm talking about l- allowing taxpayers. Al Jazeera. To, I'm talking about no. I'm talking about taxpayers being able to fund journalism, maybe the same way that they've been able to sort of support, um, you know, NTR. participation in government. You know, they underwrite campaigns. We underwrite campaigns with taxpayer-funded dollars. I think we can support journalism with taxpayer-funded dollars as well. And I think the outcome will be better than what we've seen in politics. You mean the the tax limitation-funded campaigns we have now to keep government out, to keep (laughs) big money out, has been a complete failure? I said it. I I think we can do better than that. I don't think so. Speaking of politics, yeah. you've been on Michael Johnston's transition team. Mm-hmm. Um, what the hell's wrong with you, man? I thought you were smarter than you that. You know what? Uh, when I got out of journalism, I was able to sort of reclaim my, um, my citizenship. And that's how I got a chance to be involved in philanthropic uh, things. And I finally took a foray into politics. It's the first time I've ever given money to a politician, the first time I've ever endorsed a politician. First time I ever hosted an event in my home for a politician, so it was all new to me. But I just felt like uh, this is a really pivotal, pivotal time, and um, I don't this, know how to tell this, you because it's not a time to be on the sidelines. I've been to your house many times. Um, <laughs> it's not in Denver, right? But as as goes Denver, goes the region. So to me, it's um, they're inextricably linked. That's how why, I look at why it. Why Johnston? Well, so I knew I knew. Um, Michael and Kelly, uh, both, and I consider them friends. Um, you know, when Kelly was um, the chief of staff, I, I had many opportunities to meet with her socially and that kind of thing. And the same is true She's with Michael. She's a tough lady. She's a very tough she, lady she and, and very smart. She had been very on, smart. She and I have been on the opposite side. Oh, Michael, too. I've yeah. been on the opposite sides of tons of issues. She's, she, I would put her under the tough, broad category. She's very tough. Bruff, tough. Yeah, yeah. she's tough. So, Michael, when it came, you know, elections are about, about choices. And I, I personally felt, uh, from my exposure uh, to Michael, that he had the best ideas. And to me, this was a campaign, this was a, a campaign about ideas. It wasn't about gender, it wasn't about race, it wasn't about first. It was about who has the best ideas to deal with some really vexing problems. And I thought he came out ahead. Maybe it was a nose, maybe it was a head. But but I felt like he was the best person at this moment, 
So I threw in with them. And I had a lot of people telling me, nah, don't do that. Denver's never going to elect a white male, a mayor ever. And I was like, that's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. Uh, that, that can't possibly be true. And it was proven that it's not true because he won by eight or nine points. Why? Because I thought he had really good ideas, and I think other people felt the same way. So now, you know, it's about governing, and it's about choosing the best people and reexamining everything and being tough and determined and bringing an entrepreneurial approach to government. Try fast, fail, fail fast, and do something else. Don't give up. The first time you run into a block, roadblock, figure out a way around it. And I think he's going to be that kind of mayor. I know Michael not nearly as well as you do. I will give you a few points. He, he's a remarkably affable, approachable guy. Yeah. Uh, we fought on tax increases because, like, <laughs> like everyone you love, they, they love tax increases. Right, right. Um, and because every, every answer has a massive price, price tag right. attached to it. Yeah. Uh, he seems to have great ideas. I worry about his follow-through. And this is an executive position, and he hasn't had many of those. Uh, his idea of having a, an emergency, this a declared emergency, mm -hmm. I think it was a superb idea to declare emergency. He put it on the wrong damn thing. Our emergency is not homeless. Our emergency is crime. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he, I worry a lot mm -hmm. that he is appeasing the left side of his wing, the political side. Mm -hmm. So the Lisa Harrods and the, and the Lisa Calderons, or um, Leslie Harrods, excuse me. Yeah. And that, you know, that this is the social justice warriors and we're going to do something. And what we're doing is he's doing more of the same. Hickenlooper was going to get rid of homeless in 10 years. Yeah. And I, I know economics is, is, is the friend of no journalist. But what <laughs> We you, just don't like numbers. Yes, I know this. We can't do math. We can't That's do math. All. Here's the point. What you subsidize, you get more of. And in the last two decades, what Denver and Colorado has been doing is subsidizing and giving more to homeless. And lo and behold, what you subsidize, you get more of. Well, what you tax, you get less of. Yeah. And you have been subsidizing homeless, subsidizing crime, and you haven't been taxing it, which is enforcing the law. And this emergency order yeah. does just more of that. It's talking about more services, more people. It feeds the homeless industrial complex. And what it does is it insults the people who are the victims of this crime, the people who have to clean up the needles, the people right. who are losing their cars, the people who are losing their businesses. And it says to me, as a guy who works downtown, as all the people who live downtown, it says, you know what's more important? Yeah. And it's more important to appease, Down. The, appease the social justice warriors in my political camp than the people of, of Denver who are the victims of the crimes. And I find that really insulting. Yeah, I, I um, look, I, I understand that. I understand that. But I think, um, you know, Michael's uh, perspective, and I'm not speaking for him. I'm just, actually, I'm speaking for myself. Um, homelessness and crime are kind of uh, kind of linked. You know, when you have all those encampments, right? Uh, you know, you have people robbing folks. You have people panhandling. You, uh, you know, have people openly using drugs and things of that nature. Uh, it encourages a criminal element. And I think what it's done overall is made people feel unsafe in public spaces, and and and, and you gotta you gotta address that. And I so I think that uh, in declaring a state of emergency, he's also he's he's dealing with three or four different problems. One is crime, 
One is mental illness, one is drug addiction, and one is unhoused. And I think that they're all kind of linked together. And I, I, uh, I appreciate the uh, sense of urgency that he's bringing to this. And I think if he figures out that things aren't working the way he expects them, he'll find another solution. But let me tell you this, let me, let me say this. You know, you, you were talking about how, you know, uh, you know, he does have a lot of executive experience, but, you know, he was the CEO of Gary uh, Investments. And, and at Gary, I think he and his team came up with a lot of inventive and creative solutions to solve problems that government couldn't seem to solve, such as COVID check, where, you know, during COVID, you know, people weren't able to go to work because they couldn't get tests and things of that nature. We couldn't get teachers in the classroom because they couldn't get tests to get cleared. He figured out a way to, with the private sector dollars to get people tested, to get our teachers back in the classroom so our kids could go to school, so our parents could go to work, so the economy could get going. That's a solution that he and his team brought to the table, not the mayors and governors in this, in this town. So you know, he's creative. I think he's uh, got the ability to bring good uh, smart people to the table, and he's really good at creating partnerships. So if anybody can do this, I do think it's him. Going back to the emergency order, I read the order. I read his action plan. Not one thing dealt with crime. Everything dealt with providing more services for the homeless. Nothing dealt with helping the crime. Nothing dealt with locking people up. Everything had to do with services for the homeless and making things faster and better for them. And it, it's more of the same. And from so, but, but the state of emergency is not just about the homeless. It's also about affordable housing, too. Wait, uh, excuse me. That's about the homeless. Okay, well, well you know. I, I don't I, know what, what you missed in that, in okay, that lesson. Um, maybe, I'm, maybe I did miss that. But look, when you're talking about the crime situation here in Denver, um, it's also, um, you know, the root of that is that, you know, we have openings for like 200 police officers, right? So since, you know, qualified immunity has disappeared, since there's been more scrutiny about the uh, uh, actions of police officers and stuff, it's a less attractive job. And so, you know, people have been retiring faster than we can um, replace them through the academy. So I think one of the things that the mayor is going to have to do is to figure out how to uh, close the hole at the bottom of that funnel so that we can actually replace the 100 to 200 sheriffs and, and police officers that, that we're lacking right now. So we don't have enough uh, cops on the street. We don't have enough, um, you know, um, you know, folks to, to respond. Response times are really bad as, as a result. All <laughs> of Tell those, me about it. I've, all, I've called them many times. Right. All those things contribute to not just crime, but the perception that things are broken here. Like when you're on when you're on hold on 911 literally for seven or eight minutes, you know, there's a lot of things to fix. And, and, and as Obama used to say, one of my favorite Obama phrases is, you know, we have to be able to do more than one thing at a time. And so, yeah, the state of emergency may not have been the first thing that you would have done, but it's not the only thing that Michael's going to do. Um, you know, he's going to be, he's gonna be doing a bunch I'll, of I'll stuff. I'll give you this. You're going to give me that, right? I'll give you, he's only been in here for a couple yep, weeks. Two weeks. Uh, yeah, I'll give you that. But what a, I think it was, it was a misstep. And what it shows me is, that I think he's got one eye on higher office. And much like our governor, I think he's too consumed with appeasing the wackadoodle uh, wing of his party. You're talking about the left wing? Yes, that he's got to keep Leslie. Now what about your wing? Uh, what, 
if, if the left is wackadoodle, what's the right? Oh, wing? my my wing doesn't exist anymore. But what's the name of it? What do you call oh, the, it? The, the crazy white right wingers? Yeah. What do you call them? Wackadoodle right. Okay. Wackadoodle white. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Trust me. Wackadoodle. Wackadoodle right doesn't exist anymore. They're they're inconsequential. They they don't matter okay. anymore. Okay. This wing matters. Huh. All right. So, I don't know if you noticed this, but Democrats are in control of. Everything uh, in, in this state. Yes, yes, right. yes. Everything. Yes. So you can keep playing the boogeyman on conservatives, but sooner or later, the media is going to have to start looking at left-on-left left violence going on. There is no more boogeyman to worry mm. about. There is no right in Colorado. Right. Okay. Right. I, I give you yeah. that. Yeah. You're yeah. right. You okay. Know, the, the legislature is... is Supermajority left. The courts are left. The governor is left. The mayors are left, except for Kaufman. This is it. You know, so that's what we have. Mm-hmm. You know, even Colorado Springs doesn't have a Republican right. uh, mayor. Yeah. yeah. Or or council. Yeah. So you know, don't don't talk to me about well the crazy damn Republican. They ain't none in this state okay. anymore. All right. So good point. The the point being is we've got. You might say, well, well, well Polis is a reasonable man. Johnston is a reasonable man. No, they are held hostage by the wackadoodle left, and they will not stand up to them because I think they're scared to death of them. And to see the emergency order is a perfect example of people in the building you walked into, you've you've heard me talk about yeah. the stories, yeah. you know, and it's not our job to clean up needles and human feces <laughs> and I, I agree with to that. do that, and to clean Completely. up the crime. Completely. You know, so I'm, and the people around us go, so, solve the crime. Yeah, so, Look, I I, th- I think those are really uh, strong points, but you know I think the left, um, you know, is facing a day of reckoning too. Mm-hmm. Like they're overplaying their hand. So Cedabaka gets beaten, you know, and she represents the far left, you know, like and, it, and it, replaced it, by somebody who is also <coughs> a leftist. Don't, don't make yeah, she's not yeah, not she, a socialist, yeah, not she, a communist, yeah, but she, still a very center leftist. Yeah. Uh, um, a person. Yeah, and but you're, you're seeing evidence of that around the country too, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, what people are looking for is results. They're looking for reasonable solutions. Um, you know, they're not looking just for you know, um, you know, high velocity rhetoric and pipe dreams. And if you're in that camp, whether you're on the far left or the far right, whether you're green on the far right in Congress or you're Cedabaka or you're AOC. That like if you're not getting things done, if you're not creating jobs, if you're not creating perceptions that it's safe to come downtown, that you're not going to get your car stolen, you're not going to you know run into a fentanyl addict or something like that, you're gone. And one of the things that happened in, in Colorado was they realized they'd gone too far on the whole uh, car theft thing, and they sort of ratcheted that back. You know, well they ratcheted back some. I'm a little less worried that when I go to the airport. When I come back, my car won't be there. I'm a little less worried about that. But there was a time where I, I was like, you know, I'm just going to take an Uber because I like I need my little claptrap car. You know, it may not be important to anybody uh, besides myself, but I can't afford to have it stolen either. So, you know, I do think there's some ratcheting back on both the left and the right. But your point is well taken. In 2024, <coughs> uh, Leslie Harrod is going to be uh, term limited in, mm-hmm. in her seat. You've got mm-hmm. Tay Anderson, who's already announced that he's going to run in her seat. And there's a big rumor that uh, in exchange for her endorsement to Mike Johnston, that she's going to join his administration. Mm. 
Is that likely to happen, do you think? You, you know got, what? I don't really know. Uh, well, I, I mean, you're the I, man. No, I've no, heard no. in order to talk to him, I got to talk to you. Yeah, that's not true. But, uh, nope, I don't know anything about that. And um, it's not my impression that that's how Michael operates, but, you know, um, that's politics, right? You know, you 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 give something, you get something. But um, I don't know that Michael operates in that transactional nature. I don't know that, but I have no idea what Leslie's going to do. I don't have any idea who Michael's going to appoint to any positions. But right now, I think that um, things are wide open, and he's looking at everybody. What I do believe is that he is um, uncommonly good at attracting talent from anywhere, and. Um, there are lots of people that want to be close to him because they, they see him as a once-in-a-generation politician. And I think we're going to attract a lot of talent here, and not just you know homegrown talent, but talent from around the country. Why did he get so much money from out of state compared to Kelly? You know, Well, I don't know how much he lapped Kelly. Kelly got money from out of state, too. You know, she did. She got not a, a, nearly as much. Yeah, as but Michael. Michael got a lot of grassroots contributions, like small ten, fifteen, twenty dollar uh, contributions. She didn't get the Bloomberg money the way he did. No, she didn't. But she hasn't been. She hasn't been in the Ed Reform fight the way he has been either, right? He is really known around the country for having innovative ideas that sort of moves the ball forward when it comes to educating our children. You know, he's been a principal. He's founded a school. You know, he's been able to talk about Ed Reform. Kelly wasn't doing that. That's why she didn't get money from, you know, Reed Hoffman and she didn't get money from Bloomberg because she hasn't been in that fight. But that's that's why they've seen him up close. They've seen him in the trenches and they've seen him actually make things work. When he was running Mapleton, that was a school where, you know, nobody cared. Nobody even thought much about what those Latino kids were going to do. A hundred percent of them graduated from high school. A hundred percent of them went to college. That's remarkable. That's a track record that you can run on, and that's partly why Michael won. Also, they want to invest in a guy who's going to be more than just a mayor. That's correct. You know, so he's a, he's a guy on the move, right? And you know, that's a guy that you know they're looking at, saying, you know, he has the potential to be a bigger player. He has the potential to be a U.S. senator. Maybe he has the potential to run for president. Yeah. That, that, oh, clearly, that's why they were giving him money. But they were also giving him money because they know him. He has a track record of success. I mean, even rich people don't just throw a million dollars down the drain. They don't do that. That's how they stay rich. Will he keep his promise to serve the full term? I'd be super disappointed if he didn't. Halfway through his second term, do you think he's going to run for? You know what? Um, you know, that's a different question. Uh, of course, but it depends on what he's accomplished. You know, um, like I, I, I think this is a really important moment for him to sit still, roll up his sleeves, and show everybody what he can do. And um, you know, I would be like I, I said, I would just be super, super, super disappointed, um, and I would probably be screaming from the top of buildings if he were to you know, cut and run before uh, the end of a first term, before he has a record of accomplishment, you know, or record of effort, um, I'd be super disappointed and I don't expect that. I feel sorry for him in a couple ways. Why? Well, drink your whiskey because I'm out drinking you. And when you, <laughs> when you start looking good to me, it's not, it's not a good thing. Um, because he inherits a lot of, a lot of issues not of his making. 
And, and policy, when policy is made, it takes years to build up the results of it. Right. And I look at Denver's decision on minimum wage. We've got one of the country's highest minimum wages and that's catching up to small businesses and they're going out of business. Mm -hmm. The lack of, of enforcing uh, the law, the crime is chasing out businesses, it's chasing out people. The, the, the amount of, um, um, of real estate that businesses are, are turning up on going, it's, I'm, not, I'm not doing business here. The amount of, of companies where employees are saying, I'm working from home. I am not going down there. Mm -hmm. I'll work for you, but I'm working at home because mm -hmm. I'm not losing my car. I'm not going uh, out late uh, into this. I'm not going downtown to be assaulted by crazy people. Right. Uh, so I'm not going downtown and spending money. Then you've got what the state has passed, things like the Family Leave Act, which is now going to raise um, uh, uh, payroll wages so very high. And that's gonna really start to steamroll, making particularly small businesses hurt. Then you've got what's happening to property taxes, with or without Prop HH passing. I appealed mine. <laughs> right, you appealed yours, but that's not going to matter. I, I know. It, it, you're going to have the largest property and tax increase in Colorado history, no matter what passes this fall with Prop HH. That's just a tiny, right. you know, thing, uh, and it comes out of your it comes out of your Tabor refunds anyway. You're paying one way or the other. It's 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 mirrors. Yeah. And so he's inheriting all these things that are starting to happen, plus all the energy costs of, the, of all the energy regulations. Yeah. There are so many things working against the economic viability of this city yeah. that has nothing to do with Michael Johnston's um, policies or what he does. That's true. And all the crime, all the homeless, all the real estate happenings that mm -hmm. are happening, uh, what's gonna happen to commercial real estate, he could be facing in two years a friggin' ghost town economically um, beyond beyond uh, his fact that he will not stand up to the loony wing of, of his party, uh, it could destroy the possibilities of future office. And so in a lot of ways, yeah, he's a nice guy. I feel sorry for what he might inherit. And, and, and really, that tells you a lot about him, that he still wanted that job anyway. I don't think he realizes what yeah. he walked into. Well, I do. Cause I, do you? I don't yeah, think you I, even I realize what he walked into. I do. I think that, uh, well, you know, I, I realize that it's a tsunami that's washing over, you know, major American cities. I mean, what's happening here is no different than what's happening in Chicago or Boston or San Francisco. It's worse it's, than... It's, it's really hard, right? Right now... Other cities are, are on the other side of that crust. They're, they are figuring out the problem. Even San Francisco is starting to dig out of their own stupidity. I, I would say right now, I was, I was talking to a former mayor who said, you know, it was easier to be a mayor 20 years ago. You know, you had a lot more money. You had a lot more options about how you could, you know, throw money at problems. And, you know, right now, these problems seem almost intractable. And it's not as much fun, right? It's just not as much fun. And I think that anybody, whether it was Kelly or, or, or Michael Johnston or whatever, the fact that they were actually willing to jump into the fray says, says a lot about their commitment to the city. It says a lot about uh, their belief that, you know, there's a political solution, that government can still make a difference. And I'm, I, I, I take my hat off to anybody that's willing to jump out there subject themselves to that and try.
you know, because the alternative is to just sort of, you know, wash our hands and just say, like, it's, uh, it's unsolvable, the city is ungovernable, it's going to be a ghost town, and we can't afford that. But remember what Giuliani did. Yeah. Before he went nut back Before crazy. Before he went crazy. Before he went crazy uh, with January 6th. Yeah. You know, he went in, uh, and he also wanted to make a... Uh, a stand in the first few weeks. Right. But instead of giving money to criminals, he yeah. did the opposite. Right. He took on the squeegee men, yes, the guys who would break, yes, your, break your windshield wipers. Yes, he did. And lo and behold, I know this is a surprise to everybody, he found that almost every one of those guys who would walk up to your car and squeegee mm-hmm. your car, on, uh, and if you didn't give them a dollar, they'd break, break your windshield. Uh-huh. They all had records, and they right. all had outstanding warrants, and he threw them all in jail. Yeah. And he started the, the immediate cleanup of, of the city. Yeah. And within a couple of years, yeah. this city that everyone wrote off as a crime-ridden, dead city. I remember that. Turned around to the point where Disney invested <laughs> in, in a Broadway theater. Right. And Times Square, you know, which was peep shows and you know, live sex shows. It was shows, terrible. Oh, it was a great time before before Giuliani <laughs> cleaned up Times Square. It was a beautiful place to hang out. But he turned the city around. Yeah, it he does did. show you what a leadership can do. It does. But that broken window theory of 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 uh, Policing. law yeah. worked. It did work. And I don't I don't see I don't see this guy doing it because if he did, he'd have to anger the people who endorsed him to get into office. And I don't think he's got well, what it takes to stand up to them. But like I said, it's only been two weeks, so let's see, right? Um but you know, I don't. I, mean, I don't think. Look, I look, think. Here, I'm here, reading here. in your eyes, and I don't think you think he's got what it takes to stand oh, up to I, Leslie Harrod and Lisa Calderon and the rest. Hey, Do you? they lost the race. Okay, they only lost because, only because they split the they, vote. They. What well, doesn't matter? They lost. Okay, so but that is a whole different thing than whether or not Johnston's got. You know the, what? The Kahuna's as, to stand as, up to. As him. Arthur Sulzberger once told me, you know, after he made a move that a lot of people didn't like, he was like, you know, you know. They're in pain. I'm not. Let's move on. Okay. Like I, I think that he understands that he won the race. He is the mayor. Okay. And what happens, perhaps, if it turns out that his state of emergency turns out to be his version of the broken windows theory it, that 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 was in New York? That would be fantastic, right? If that is the case, then Hickenlooper was right, and homelessness ended in 2015. Ten years after he he end, he started the road home, when yeah. he said, "In ten years, this will be ended permanently." But look, I do understand what you're saying. I, I, I but I think the broken windows theory, which was uh, uh, Bill Braden, who was a former police chief in Boston, so I know a little bit about that, and I know him, uh, turned out to be, even though it was being criticized, a very effective way um, to sort of give citizens back their city. And uh, like I, I applaud that, and so I think Michael's going to come up with his own version right, let, let of that. Let me ask you. So let's this. see what happens. Let me ask you this: When John Hickenlooper said we're going to end homelessness permanently in ten years, and started throwing money at building new homeless stuff, giving new services, subsidizing this stuff, did you really think that it was going to end homelessness in ten years? Actually, I didn't. So now. Actually, I did. Now that uh, your man Johnston says he's going to end homelessness in four years yeah. by doing the exact same shit that your that Hickenlooper did, do you believe he's going to end it by doing the same stuff by just throwing more money at it? Well, um, look, I you know, uh, that's I, a pretty direct question. Okay, to be honest, honestly, I don't know. Be honest. Okay. 
doing the same thing and expecting. I don't, I don't, a, I don't think he's doing the same thing. But doing the same I, thing I, and ex, I don't exactly think, the same thing. Read, no, I don't think so. Building more stuff, micro communities, more services, more people out there, hygienes, more look, people in the encampments. Understanding that. Um, how is that, that not the same thing? Well, look, I mean, it's, it's how you diagnose the problem. And I think what he's done is a pretty good start at diagnosing what the real problem is. And, and part of what the real problem is, is mental health, you know? Exactly I mean, what? Hick and Looper said. Mental health and addiction, drug addiction. Same and, thing. And in particular, and the decriminalization of fentanyl has exacerbated the problem. Okay, and that wasn't a problem at the time that Hick and Looper was talking about this. So there have been things that have happened since then that's exacerbated the problem. And the other thing that's happened is like, you know, there's a complete collapse of a metropolitan approach to this problem. Okay. So you have communities like in the suburbs that don't even have a shelter for homeless people, okay? They don't have any services for homeless people, so they're all downtown on our mall. I mean, they're the not subsidizing center. it. I'm saying they're not doing they're not doing what they should be doing to help solve this problem. And amazingly, I think, if we stop subsidizing it and started taxing it instead, yeah. it would go away. And, and you know what? I would say I would put that idea in the mix, okay? All right. So let me ask the question. And, since, okay. I'm out, since I'm out of booze, that means this show is over. <laughs> In four years, just like Hick and Looper said 10 years, Johnson said four years. And from my point of view, he's doing the same thing. But you say he's going to do okay, something different. I'll answer your question. You've, asked, it, you've will, asked me twice. You've will, asked me twice. Will homelessness be gone? I'm betting on my guy, yes. I'm betting on my guy. Well, I just want to let you know. I'm the just saying, I'm saying it to the camera. I'm betting on my guy, so I say yes. yes. If I didn't believe that, then you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be where where I am. I mean, I'm with the guy. You I'm understand with the chances of the internet still being around in four years <laughs> is really good. It's right? really good. Yeah, it's really good. Right, I know. So, <laughs> now I know. The, the chances of you not being around in four <laughs> years are pretty high. It's also pretty high too, <laughs> right? My friend, right. thank you so much. It's really great. Good to see you. Till next time. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations.